Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to be talking with Senator Maisie Hirono, Democrat from Hawaii. She's the first Asian American woman and the only immigrants currently serving in the U.S. Senate. Her new memoir, Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story, is an inspiring account of one woman coming into her personal and political power, a heartwarming homage to the women who raised her, and a behind-the-scenes look at some of the most fraught moments of the Trump administration. Later in this hour, we'll be revisiting a portion of our conversation from 2017 with mechanical engineer, musician, and author Christine McKinley. First, our conversation with Senator Hirono. I reached to Senator Hirono on Friday. So what inspired you to write this book? My husband had been suggesting that I write a memoir, and I finally decided that my mother, who had suffered two strokes, no longer able to tell her incredible story, I I wanted to do this and dedicate the book to her. And so um, that was the impetus, really. For this book, I, I have a, a, I had. She passed away last month. I had an amazing mother who changed my life by bringing me to this country, and uh, I wanted to do this to tell her story and that of my grandmother also, who was a, a very <laughs> amazing person herself. Uh, in fact, the subtitle is an immigrant daughter's uh, story. Uh, tell me about about that. This is just incredible. Uh, your mother, uh, you know came essentially alone with you and uh, one of your brothers. So first of all, why why did uh, why did she leave Japan? My mother uh, escaped literally uh, from an abusive husband and his abusive family uh, and brought her children. And she had to do it uh, by uh, stealth because if uh, if he had found out, he would have stopped her certainly from bringing any uh, bringing us, but my mother changed my life by bringing us to this country, escaping an abusive marriage to a father who, uh, uh, to her husband, to my father who I never got to know. And so um, uh, I didn't know anything about Hawaii and America. My goodness. (laughs) I was raised on a little rice farm in rural Japan. And so this was a total, total change. I spoke no English or anything. And uh, we, we were poor. And beginning in, in the beginning in Hawaii, it, my mother worked really hard with uh, no such thing as a safety, uh, social safety net or anything. She worked hard with little pay, no health care, no benefits to take care of us. And she brought the two older kids, me and my older brother, because we would be old enough to go to school. And we, uh, to the, she had to make the really tough decision to leave my younger brother. Wayne in Japan because there would be nobody in Hawaii to take care of him while she worked. Um, and your mother, uh, I think, worked uh, two jobs, low pay each, to, to keep you guys afloat. Yes. Yes. So she worked for a Japanese language newspaper as a typesetter, and, and that was not anything she ever did in Japan. But uh, she is a very uh, focused, determined person, and she learned how to do it. and. The pay was low, so she took a second job with a catering company, and she would um, do these evening catering jobs. So uh, she was working most of the time. Uh, My older brother and I, we got our English names. She decided we should have English names. So she named me Maisie, and she named my older brother Roy, and while we were at it, she named my younger brother Wade. 
So uh, we were original latchkey kids, I have to say, <laughs> while my mother worked. Uh, the book is called Heart of Fire. What are you talking about there? It is a description of my mother who had a heart of fire because uh, it takes tremendous courage uh, and uh, risk-taking to uh, bring uh, eventually three children and her grandparents to America so that we could get away from my father and uh, start a new life for ourselves. But little did we know that uh, <laughs> that I would get into politics or all of that is in the future. So my own journey uh, was uh, very, um, uh, <laughs> how shall I say, is unpredictable, I would say. But my mother was uh, very, very supportive of all of the different things that I did, <laughs> which were not the usual kinds of things that young girls did. But it really expanded my horizons. And I had a mother who didn't, not once, say, when are you going to get married and when are you, when are you going to have kids? <laughs> that took a lot of pressure off me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier your grandmother, who apparently had the, the same spirit. Yes, she did. She came to this country as a picture bride, to, uh, and, and she married my grandfather, basically sight unseen, and, and uh, my grandfather had come to Hawaii to work on the plantations at only age 16, so he didn't have much uh, formal education. And then my grandmother decided that she would come here as a picture bride, and so she left everything she knew. She had a comfortable life in Japan, but uh, I think she thought this would be a good Thing for her, and, and she came to Hawaii and worked really hard on the plantations. You can imagine what life was like for her, and she determined that uh, she would start a business. Uh, so she was quite entrepreneur. They started a bathhouse uh, moving away from the plantation to downtown Honolulu. Then she also began to um, send money back to Japan because she fully intended to go back to Japan. A lot of the immigrant laborers who came to Hawaii uh, intended to go back, and not many of them could because they didn't have enough money. But my mother being the, my grandmother being the entrepreneur business person that she was, so she takes my mother, who was born in Hawaii at age 15, to, to Japan, a place that my mother was not familiar with. So my grandmother took her children to a country that they didn't know, and then my mother brought me to a country that I didn't know. So it's a quite the journey for our family to start life uh, over three times. First in Hawaii, then back to Japan, then back to Hawaii. What was it like growing up uh, in Hawaii? This is a very diverse um, place. Yes, thankfully. And I, I am even more thankful of that diversity and the fact that we appreciate the other cultures and we intermarry at a higher rate than just probably any other state. And so very diverse. I didn't know it then. All I knew was that this was a really nice place, but it wasn't Japan. And I, I miss my grandmother a lot because she raised me in Japan from the time I was three to just before I came. So I lived with her for five years, and there was a time when I, when I knew her better than I, I knew my own mother. So it was quite the adventure, but you know, the focus is really on uh, acculturating us. I was discouraged from speaking Japanese, and the whole idea was to fit in to this new country. So there was a lot of time spent doing that, and not to mention my mother working all the time. So uh, it, I knew that we, uh, we were uh, poor and we were struggling.
and that that informs a lot of the the kinds of priorities that I have uh, in my political life. That kind of background. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, your background, how it uh, fits with uh, you know, some of the legislation that you support. Uh, maybe we talk about health care. You, you mentioned there certainly wasn't any social safety net for at least at that point for your mother and you. So, uh, growing up, growing up, and my mother had very low paying jobs with no health care, no benefits, and so I was really scared as a child. Mom would get sick, and she wouldn't be able to go to work. No work, no pay, no food. Uh, even when she was working, we would uh, run out of food by the end of the month. And so we lived really simply, ate really simply in a one-room boarding house for the first uh, two years of uh, our time. And uh, so, uh, you know, all, all of that. And then my grandparents were sponsored, and we were able to reunite as a family. But it was still very much a, a humble beginning we would move every two years. I kept changing schools every two years. I'd have to uh, make new friends. I, I learned to pretty much be quite self-sufficient uh, because we would move <laughs> every two years. My mother kept trying to improve our living situation. Um, and and so um, um, I really thought, though, that in spite of the very unique background, I, I didn't really talk about the fact that I was an immigrant. <laughs> People in Hawaii didn't know that I was an immigrant until I started running for office, basically. And there was a lot of my immigrant life that they didn't know what it was like growing up in Japan, what it was like coming to Hawaii. But uh, it was literally that kind of background, my desire to do something that would give back to a country that gave me opportunities I never would have had in Japan. I definitely never would have been able to go to college. I definitely would not be running for office or doing that. Uh, I was raised on a little rice farm with my grandparents in a rural part of Japan. Uh, and so uh, going to the university also really opened my eyes to uh, uh, protesting the Vietnam War, and that's eventually what uh, what was my political awakening to finally begin to question what my own country was doing in Vietnam and meeting some activist people who um, turned to politics as a way to make social changes, and I still believe that. And I ran a person's... I ran my first campaign of a guy <laughs> in 1970, took me another 10 years of being really involved in politics in Hawaii before I ran for office myself, which is a pretty typical kind of trajectory for women uh, in our country, in my generation. There were low expectations, people telling me, you can't do it, you're not ready, all of that. <laughs> so that's uh, something that I think a lot of women in this country can relate to. And clearly the uh, culture that I come from being a vocal, confrontational, aggressive, we're not uh, rewarded, particularly coming from a woman. Mm. So it was a trajectory and a journey for me <laughs> to become this relatively outspoken person that I am now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, certainly. Um, I want to uh, double back and uh, talk about this gender gap, at least that that was, and I don't know if it still is. Uh, so a, a man might go more directly, maybe run a campaign, then go directly to running for office, a woman, at least at that time, would, uh, you know, hesitate, and maybe for years, oh, uh, yes. to, to run for office. Yes. A lot of women have, uh, thought that uh, uh, we weren't ready, we didn't have enough uh, experience, et cetera. So, you know, those are 
conditions that don't seem to stop the guys at all. As one of my staff people said, yeah, guys think that it's their God-given right to run for office. So for women, it uh, the preparation time is usually longer, certainly was in my case. The good thing is that there are a lot of uh, young women in particular and, and minorities who are running for office and they're doing it and getting elected. I, I am very uh, reassured by, by that kind of activism. But for myself, it took me a while to uh, be the candidate myself. By that time, I had worked on three campaigns, all for men. And um, I, I, but even then, I decided that I only had a bachelor's degree, and I needed more credentials if I was going to uh, be, be uh, as effective as I wanted to be in the political arena. But I still wasn't thinking of running for office myself, so off I went to law school. And uh, I had been out of school, college, for five years, so uh, it was kind of interesting to be one of the older law students. But it was a good thing because I in law school. I was not on this uh, treadmill. <laughs> so many of my law school uh, the fellow students were they they were on a treadmill to get these big deal, um, you know, go go to these big law firms and all that. And that was that was never uh, a goal that I had. My goal was to get that credential <laughs> so that I could go back to Hawaii and start a public interest law firm or join a public interest law firm. There weren't any such law firm, so I. Was I, I joined the attorney general's office? That came close mm-hmm. to public interest law. <laughs> right. You mentioned uh, this journey from uh, you know holding back, not being outspoken, to becoming outspoken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, again, that's uh, yeah. that's socialization, right? To that the, the girls are taught. At least at, I don't know if it's the, now, but at least at the time, yes. you don't speak out. Alisto, you mentioned the the gender gap, um, and it still is. Believe me. There's still views about, for example, Asian women, how we're supposed to be quiet and cooperative, demure and all that. And, and clearly, um, if you recall the, the, uh, Hillary's campaign against Trump, that's recent. I mean, look at the, the misogyny that, uh, that she had to put up with. And clearly in the 2008 campaign that Hillary was in, uh, there's just so much gender uh, uh, discrimination against her. And, and it's just amazing when I reread some of the books of that race, like uh, Rebecca Tracer's book on Hillary's 2008 race, and then to realize that women get asked questions like, you know, is she likable enough? Do you think men are asked such questions? No. <laughs> so the gender gap still exists. Thankfully, we have a lot of very articulate women who uh, ran for office, got elected, and, and I think that is that kind of view of leadership from women is changing, and, and <laughs> women are much more collaborative. I like to do things collaboratively, but if I have to, I will be uh, very vocal and aggressive about it mm-hmm. these days. Yeah. <laughs> Your, uh, the more outspoken Senator Hirono uh, somewhat coincided with the rise and election of Donald Trump. Uh, I don't think that's a coincidence, right? No, it certainly isn't. One thing I can't stand uh, are bullies. And uh, so the, the Trump was the biggest bully of them all. It was unbelievable that he even got elected because watching him in his campaign and, the, and how he acted and, and the, the take, you know, he's an admitted sexual predator and all of that. And the guy gets elected and he proceeds to get even worse. And so at one point I decided that... Um, I should speak up more because I, I, as a U.S. senator, I had a platform. But for the longest time, I was really not comfortable 
uh, speaking out or or talking to the national media. I spent my time before I was going to talk to media with uh, the Hawaii people. But it, Trump and his, his bullying and and one, I remember the moment when I spoke to a spray. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the spray. It's when all these media people from print and you know TV they they they, they kind of. Uh, uh, Locate themselves at the, at the end of a hallway in the Capitol or in, in in one of the buildings, and they kind of wait for one of us to step up to the mics and start talking. So uh, I remember that day when Trump was talking about my friend Kirsten Gillibrand coming to see him and begging him for help, and the innuendo was so atrocious and obnoxious. I thought. My gosh, so I was very upset by it, and, and so there was a spray as I was going toward my Judiciary Committee hearing, and my uh, my communications director said, uh, why don't you just step up and say what's been on your mind, because I've been talking to him about, you know, about what was being said about Kirsten. So I got up there and I said, you know, we have... We have a misogynist, we have a, a, a liar, a, a metasexual predator in the White House, and he should resign. And then I walked off to, to my hearing. So um, to be able to speak like this, which is very contrary to uh, my culture and my background and um, as a woman, as an Asian, um, and to be able to speak plainly has been... Uh, um, a very freeing thing for me, and I and uh, I view myself as being more completely uh, myself now because I was always a very determined person <laughs> to uh, run for office and all of that. But I, I had I, I was very strategic in getting things done, but I just didn't have to be so noisy about it and vocal about it. But that is a part of me to be that way, and so I now view my speaking up plainly as. Um, as a gift to myself and to become a more complete me and it was a journey you are uh believe at this point the the only immigrant as a senator right um and you yes. talked you talked a little bit earlier in our conversation about what it meant for you to uh to be an immigrant to come to america i wonder if you could expand on that a bit uh, you talked about opportunities you had uh, here that you would not have had back in japan our country still calls to people from all over the world who uh, see our country as really a land of opportunity. And these are not just empty words to uh, to immigrants who come to our to our country um, in the hopes of creating a better life. And that was my experience. And yes, there are a lot of immigrants who come to our country who have great jobs and you know who uh, have all of that going for them. But for a lot of immigrants, they sh- they have the kind of experience in this country that I had. And so, yes, uh, comprehensive immigration re- reform is a is a priority of mine. Speaking up for uh, children who were taken away from their parents and the trauma that our country caused them with that and my own experience of my younger brother having been left in Hawaii, I mean in Japan when the rest of us came to Hawaii because he was too young to go to school and the trauma that stayed with him, uh, that trauma of separation is something that I experienced, the lack of health care as an immigrant, poor paying jobs uh, that's also uh, infor- informs my uh, my wanting better pay for people and you know to create opportunities for people in this country that's that's really important to me so 
I would not be doing what I'm doing. I doubt very much that I would have run for office if I did not have the immigrant experience of coming to a whole new country, having to fend and watching my mom struggle uh, and and doing things that, that uh, were different from what the rest of my classmates were doing, uh, such as, you know, working in a poor community and, and learning from that community that that uh, uh, that there there was so much more to what uh, I could think about doing with my life. So all of these things uh, led to my running for office myself. But it was very strange <laughs> to become the candidate and not the one supporting other candidates, all men, <laughs> at that point. <laughs> um, I wonder if you you talked a little bit earlier about. Um, growing up in Hawaii, very diverse culture, but uh, I guess the classic melting pot and interaction between cultures very much alive. Maybe contrast that with what we're seeing increasingly today in the country, which is you know, tribalism and, and separating out. Yes. I think we have a very divided country, and uh, we had a former president who stoked that kind of d- division, who uh, who really... Uh, referred to uh, Mexicans as, uh, you know, referred to Mexicans as rapists. He referred to Filipinos as animals who uh, imposed a Muslim ban. All of that uh, talked about this pandemic as a Chinese virus, and his administration referred to it as a kung flu, creating, uh, creating an environment where the, the animus, anti-Asian-American Pacific Islander animus, that is in our country, just as racism is now far below the surface in our country, comes to the fore. So we've had a huge increase in hate crimes, totally unprovoked uh, hate crimes against Asian Americans. And we've all seen the videos of of uh, people being uh, kicked and beaten and uh, slashed, and it's been uh, horrendous. And this is a community that has always been viewed as the other, as a perpetual foreigner, and uh, felt invisible. So, uh, yes, uh, a very divided country. And my hope is that, uh, that that President Biden, who seeks to bring our country together through the kinds of legislation, like the the rescue plan that that helps working people and all these families out there who are struggling, regardless of whether you're, you know, whatever your racial or political background is, and, and then he wants to create jobs. It's it's so it's such a relief to have a president who cares, as he said, about the entire country, not just the people who voted for him, not just the people who look like him. So oh, it is going to take time for, uh, I would say, truth and recon- reconciliation to take hold in our country. It doesn't come easily. We have lots and lots of people who still believe in the big lie. And now we have states that are considering hundreds of laws that uh, suppress votes, mainly of minorities and uh, the black community. Um, so you, it, it's, it's, it continues and we have to fight back. But, you know, I think that if we can enact legislation that create jobs that enables this country to get back on our feet economically, to get our schools reopened safely, I, I hope that that will help us to not uh, take out aggressions and everything else on people we see as not one of us. So that is my hope. It will take time. Just a couple of minutes left here. Uh, I want to bring conversation back to your mother. 
Um, I, I just want to quote you. You say, I watched my mom work incredibly hard, even when things were challenging or unfair, to provide a life for my brothers and me. The words that come to my mind are grit, resilience, uh, traits that we all need these days. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your mother and, and having these traits. My mother, uh, as I say, it was amazing that uh, she took control of her over her life when women in Japan, she was only 30, she told me at one point that she had to do all this by the time she was 30, otherwise she didn't think that she could do it. So courage that she had as a young woman to uh, literally put thousands of miles between my father and us, uh, that's risk-taking. So the life lessons that I, much of which I learned from her, is one person can make a difference because she made a di- difference. She changed my life with her courage and grit, perseverance. Uh, two is half the battle is showing up. She just kept going, showing up, not just physically, but just mentally and emotionally staying the course. And she showed me that. And the third is to take risks, to get out of your comfort zone. And she certainly did that. Every time we moved, for example, to a, a better house, you know, we would have to pay more in rent, and and everyone would be very concerned whether we could make rent. But she's a she's a risk taker. She learned how to drive when she was in her forties. <laughs> she decided, okay, I'm going to learn how to drive now, and she drove until uh, into her eighties. And she was totally active in everything she did. Just focused on everything she did. She she showed me the perseverance. So that is the heart of fire that that she had. And she wasn't noisy about it. She wasn't beating her chest saying, look at me. No, she just went about doing things that, uh, that where she, le- she learned how to be a proofreader. I mean, here's a person who didn't even graduate from high school, and she goes to work for um, the, the newspaper uh, to become a proofreader. She, she became, I, I would say, the best because she really took that job to heart, and, and she had she created her own workbook, all of that. Uh, and, and so pretty darn amazing that she did all these things. And that's why I've told her, there's absolutely nothing I can do in my life, Mom, that could even compare to what you did. And that's, that's her legacy mm-hmm. to me. Well, uh, we're out of time here. Thank you so much for telling us about your uh, your mother and uh, about your story. The memoir is called Heart of Fire, subtitles An Immigrant Daughter's Story, and uh, the author is Senator <laughs> Maisie Hirono. Senator Hirono, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. You take care. Okay. Be kind. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> Aloha. Appreciate it. Aloha. <laughs> and bye. bye. Bye now. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. I reached uh, Senator Hirono. On Friday, we're grateful for that uh, conversation. Uh, she was on a, a tight schedule there and uh, was only able to give us around a half an hour interview. We're grateful for that. Uh, uh, that means we have some extra time here on the program today. So following a break, we're uh, going to uh, give you a couple of excerpts from a 2017 conversation, very interesting conversation uh, with a mechanical engineer, musician and author Christine McKinley. And that's coming up. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Lynn's Audio Video, offering sales and service in Cache Valley since 1958. Celebrating spring with Samsung, LG, and Sony 4K and HDTVs and installs. Located at 1655 North Main in Logan. Information at lynnsaudiovideo.com.
kindergartenersclub.com. Did you know that kindergartners can learn to code? Coding toys, which allow children to program simple sequences of light, sounds, or actions, are becoming more and more accessible to parents and educators. Research is ongoing to determine how these toys can enhance problem-solving skills and help foster early computational thinking. By studying the way kindergartners think and reason, researchers hope to evaluate the effectiveness of such toys so that educators can make more informed decisions about the toys they use in early childhood settings. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're grateful for a conversation with Senator Maisie Hirono. Again, the memoir is out, and it's called Heart of Fire. We have some more time, uh, obviously, in the program today, and we're going to turn to a conversation from 2017 with mechanical engineer, musician, and author Christine McKinley. Her musical, Gracie and the Atom, won a Portland Drammy for original score. Her book, Physics for Rock Stars, was published in 2014 by Penguin Random House. And Christine McKinley hosted Brad Meltzer's Decoded on History Channel and Under New York on Discovery Channel. Here's a portion of our conversation from 2017. I want to talk a bit about um, this. You, you have a phrase, handmade life. Yeah. Um, so from, from your blog, by the way, christinemckinley.com is the website. So this blog post was titled Handmade Life. And you say, I think I've finally done it. My life is the perfect mix of engineering, writing, music, and getting muddy. Yeah. I've finally done it. So so tell me about that. So you're an engineer. Yes. That's your profession. You're, yes. You write. You do music. We'll get into some of that a little later. Getting muddy. That's getting in the outdoor doors. I guess. Uh, yeah. I'm a trail runner and um, mountain biker and, and skier. And so I, there's just a certain amount of, I think from growing up in Alaska, maybe there's just a certain amount of being outdoors and um, just being tired and muddy that, that if I don't get that, I don't feel right. Mm-hmm. So handmade life, what does that mean? To me, it means even if you don't see it, if you don't see um, someone who has exactly the life, um, because I I didn't know anyone doing, I didn't know any women engineers at all when I was little. I barely know any now. Um, Go ahead and make that life by hand. Just take pieces and create something that no one else has ever created. Your Mm. your life is is the greatest, most important science experiment you will ever participate in. So take even if it doesn't seem like if you just love macrame and you also want to be a chemical engineer, there is nothing wrong with combining those in some way. Mm-hmm. And the, I guess the 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 reason why sometimes you have to push through uh, is we do have cultural stereotypes, don't we? Yeah, we have cultural stereotypes, and we have really well-meaning people, you know, maybe even in our family who are trying to protect us from being laughed at or being hurt or failing. And you just have to, I just call that the blessing when someone says, oh, well, you better not go do that. Then, then, you know, you're probably doing the right thing because it's something new and original and just um, thank them for their love and concern. And then uh, maybe don't give them all the information about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Don't give them all the information. Yeah, I mean, I learned, um, especially when I was traveling a lot and traveling in in not-so-safe places, I learned to just call my mom uh, every now and then when I was somewhere safe. Mm. 
this is terrible advice yeah. to young people. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I was, I mean, I was an adult yeah. then and making adult decisions. Right. Yeah. Right. When you're a teenager, yeah, hiding things from your parents is not the best. Right. Before we went on the air, uh, we were talking a little bit about what it's like to be a woman in, in engineering world. Mm -hmm. Still quite few, very few women yeah. engineers, I think. 7% of mechanical engineers are mm -hmm. women in this, yeah. in this country. Yeah. Is there, do you feel a need to, I don't know, overcompensate? Do you feel a need to, <laughs> you know, is, is there that? Yeah, there's that. I, I, I definitely want to be the most prepared person in the room. Um, it took me a while to get there. There's just a lot to know in mechanical engineering or in any engineering. There are a lot of different kinds. And so it took me a while to decide on the kind that I wanted to be, which is design and construction. Um, and then from there, I would, if I knew something was coming up, like I know we're going to discuss, you know, hazardous gases and how to build for them and then I would study fire code the night before because if you're the only blonde woman in a in a room full of engineers and construction managers and dudes you want to have your facts right because mm -hmm. the good and the bad is that if you're the one who looks different than everybody um, you'll stand out that mm -hmm. can be great because then you're the, the rock star in the room and that can be terrible when you misstep mm. are there uh, I, don't, I don't know have you experienced the downside of that, you know, what, what we what we think of is is, is happening. At least it was presented in yeah. popular culture. You, you know, the stereotypes and you mean uh, and the people, barriers, and people the, being unsupportive, people or, being unsupportive, uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think um, I've I've started to track it. I actually wanted to graph it once every two weeks. Someone says something just outright offensive that you just it's stunning and it can be someone younger than me sometimes it's another woman you know that that just says something so stupid that they they truly think that women's minds aren't built for engineering it's about once every two weeks and then um in general yeah there are a lot of a lot of you know what's a nice girl like you doing here mm. <laughs> So once every two weeks, that yeah, that seems right. like a lot. I would I, yeah. I would have hoped we'd have made progress. So how do how do we combat that? I would have thought so too. I feel like I combat it by um, not making a big deal and continuing my work and continuing to show up and do as good or a better job um, than than the guys in the room. Mm. And then also to know who your allies are. Mm. I mean, sometimes I'll walk in and there'll be an older guy and I'll think, oh, this is going to be a problem. And he is the nicest, most supportive. And then he tells me later, oh, my daughter's studying to be an engineer. So you you never can get your back up and think, oh, God, these, these guys are going to be terrible. Because sometimes it's just the – you just never know. Mm. What do you love about engineering? You're a mechanical engineer. Oh, yeah. So much. I, I love it more than being on TV. I love it more than being on stage. I love um, solving these puzzles, and I love being helpful. So I love going into a situation where, say, a hospital is trying to seismic upgrade, and they've got a problem with all their windows, and they've got, you know, maybe a behavioral health lockdown and a NICU, and this complex puzzle with vulnerable people um, preparing for the worst. And you can come in, like I can come in and actually make a plan that makes makes it all work and protects the humans involved. 
I mean, that is, so, I mean, I just get like goosebumps talking about it. It's really mm-hmm. exciting. You have to do it within code, within the rules. You have to do it within budget. You have to do it on schedule. You have to know, hey, it's going to start pouring rain at this time. So we need to have these windows sealed up. We can't move these patients around, you know, because they're, they're immune deficient. We have to have certain pressure relationships. That is really exciting stuff. And just the bigness of it. I was on a $500 million project at Intel recently, and the foundation they had to dig was like a canyon. It's just massive and muddy, which mm. I loved. Yeah, there you go. That's your <laughs> that's the, the fourth pillar there. Um, so what what will it take to get more women into STEM? I think just this. I think um, letting them know uh, that it's fun, that there's real money, that there's real flexibility, that even if they decide to become a parent, um, they can leave the industry for five years and come back and be relevant, that they could work part-time from home. Um, that there's travel in it, there's international travel if you want that, um, and that it's a revolutionary act in some ways. You know, it's still a revolutionary act. Instead of um, women's studies, you know, maybe study electrical engineer. That's that's as much a statement. Hmm. Um, so I had a th- uh, thought and I just lost it. You want to be an engineer now. I want to be an engineer right? now. That's right. You're that's, just regretting that's I, that's all right. your career choices. I'm regretting every career choice. That's right. That's right. Uh, especially the money part. Um, yeah, it's good. Good money. So that's and it's, I, and I, it's, I what you tell it's, girls, right? It's a tough thing to talk about because it's a kind of a crass thing to talk about. We're you know we're, we're, we're polite people don't talk about money and how much they make. Um, but I think if you're a kid whose parents maybe can't pay for college, so you're going to take a loan, or maybe can't support you past your 18th birthday, which was the case for me. They said, you know, your 18th birthday, your present is a month free rent. Um, Then you need to think about how much money you want to make because then you can help your family because then Mm. you can take your sister on a ski trip. Then you can help your niece do things. Then you can have a car that always runs. Mm -hmm. You can buy a home. Right. Those are all pluses. I I know what I was uh, remembering. You talk in the book about some of these things crystallized for you as you would work your summer jobs. Yeah. And and you knew you didn't want to do that Yeah. Some for, cr- for your job uh, the rest of your life. Yeah. You go, parents, go ahead and let your kids get the crummiest summer job they can get. You know, fast food. Or I just did a lot of shoveling and uh, planting and yard work and just hot, nasty work. And mm. that is what is available to you um, if you don't have any education, mm. unfortunately. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Right now we're hearing a portion of a conversation from 2017 with mechanical engineer, musician, and author Christine McKinley. And we'll have more with Christine McKinley following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Palmer Home Furnishings, offering a variety of sofa love sets, dining room, and bedroom furniture. Located at 1670 South Highway 165 in Providence. Information at palmerhomefurnishings.com. Coming up, a special edition of Witness History from the BBC, with first-hand accounts of major moments that changed our understanding of the way we live and its effect on the planet. We hear about the groundbreaking research by the father of climate science. And we meet the woman who began the organic farming movement. I'm Claire Bowes. Join me for Witness History, Environmental History. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. For the past two years here on Utah Public Radio, we've been bringing you a weekly dose of research and exploration. 
We call it undisciplined because we work really hard to take scientific studies, which are usually written in journals intended for people who share a background in a subject matter, and make them accessible for just about everyone. There are more than 100 episodes available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can catch us every Thursday morning at 1030 here on UPR. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are hearing excerpts from a conversation from 2017 with mechanical engineer, musician, and author Christine McKinley. Her musical Gracie and the Atom won a Portland Drammy for original score, and her book Physics for Rockstars is out published in 2014. Here is another excerpt from my conversation. I want to uh, get into the musician side of side of you. You. you uh, there must be an artistic need there, right? So yeah. it's, you're doing mechanical engineering during yeah. the day, and, and but you you're a musician as well. Yes. Tell me about about that side. Well, I started uh, I started playing bass in college, um, so I started really early. As I was studying mechanical engineering, I was really studying um, songwriting and and how to hand, handle gear on stage and and how to make money as a musician and. Um, I just love I just love what a, a well constructed song does to to our brain. I just mm. I absolutely am in love with music, and I still try and stay current on what's coming out. And um, I just don't think that'll ever go away for me. Mm. So the, the two ongoing tracks, of course, then you write as well, and mm-hmm. and you get muddy. Uh, so those are the four <laughs> four things. Um, uh, but, but compare and contrast then that your work in engineering, and then. You're well, playing as a musician, composing as a musician. You know, engineering design and songwriting are not that different um, in some ways. Uh, you, you need to, um, you need to like, it's hard to explain, but in thermodynamics, when um, steam states change, for example, um, you sort of pit, like maybe a temperature will stay the same, but it turns into uh, a more wet steam. It's the same when key, uh, a key changes in a song. Mm-hmm. You, you sort of keep your foot on, you can sing one note and that one note shows up in the next chord. So I'm not explaining this well, but there's just know that it's real similar thinking where you need to stay organized, but you also need to reach. So mm-hmm. in design, you need to stay organized, you need to stay within code, stay within structure, but you need to then reach creatively and think, now where could I put this air handling unit? It's the same writing songs. Mm-hmm. You can't make the drummer suddenly completely change what she's doing, but um, there needs to be consistency, and, and you need to allow the listener to follow. Hmm. Uh, let me just read this uh, brief uh, paragraph here, what Gracie and the Atom is about. Uh, so it's described as the soundtrack to a, uh, the musical play about life, death, physics, and Catholic school. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's accurate so far. Great big hooks, a choir of girls' voices to back the vocals. That, and so when Gracie loses her father, she's sent off to Catholic school. Uh, while Sister Ludwina uh, preaches physics, Sister Francis d- dissects go- the Gospels, Archimedes slides into his tub, Jesus walks in Galilee, and Einstein searches for the theory of everything. Gracie looks to them all to answer her questions. Why is she at Our Lady of Peace uh, High School if she's not Catholic? How can she get a message from her father? Where is the mother she never knew? Her new classmates help her with the details of purgatory, Ouija boards, and uh, superhero saints. But nothing in this new territory, protons, prayer, miracles, and mechanics, can help Gracie escape gravity or prepare her for what she finds. Sounds fascinating. <laughs> wow. And, and I assume some of this is autobiographical? Yeah, some of it is. I actually lost my dad um, a week after I graduated from college, my stepdad, who encouraged me to be a mechanical engineer and was really just a great parent. Um, so I lost him right after. Um, 
Gracie loses her dad right before starting high school. And she goes on a similar uh, journey that I did. It, it, when I lost my dad, he suddenly he died in a fire. I thought, you know, I know all of this about physics. I understand, um, you know, relativity as well as I can. Somewhere in there, he, he's he's able to communicate with me. I had this really sort of magical, like there's got to be a way with everything I know to understand why this happens, where I'm going to go, and how I can how he can stay in touch with me. Hmm. Let's hear a, a song. Uh, for, this is a uh, one of the briefer songs. Let's hear it. It's called "Falling Down." Anything you want to say to set this up? Um, this is a duet, right? This is a um, in the, in the show in the musical. This is a duet between um, two girls, two best friends. And I was told in order to write a musical, there really needs to be a love interest, and I I uh, ignored that advice. Mm-hmm. And to me, the love interest is these um, girls, these uh, high school girls, really watching out for each other. Let's hear this. This is uh, Falling Down. This is from Christine McKinley's uh, musical called Gracie and the Atom. If you die before me, can I walk with your ghost? You'd be so light, then you could teach me to float. That's how we get around Without falling The, uh, the song uh, Falling Down from Christine McKinley's musical Gracie and uh, the Atom. Beautiful. 
Thank you. Is that you singing? Yeah, that's me singing mm-hmm. and Tracy Grammer. Okay. Oh, Tracy Grammer. Great. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the, the uh, Gracie mm-hmm. says she she wants to escape gravity, right? And, and if she does, she'll come back for yeah for for her friend. It, it, yeah, it's that it's that kind of friendship when when you think like if I die first, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'll hang around and help you in any way I can. Mm-hmm. I want to hear just a little bit uh, of one more song. It's called St. Michael. St. Michael, St. Jude, forgive me my bad attitude. I may need a miracle here I don't deserve. Would you throw rocks at my window to wake me? Would you throw them right through? I want to know what you would own.
That is St. Michael from Christine McKinley's uh, musical, Gracie and the Atom. That uh, musical won the Portland Drammy for original score. So that's a portion of uh, conversation for 2017 with Christine McKinley, who's a mechanical engineer, musician, and author. Her book, Physics for Rockstars, was published in 2014, and she hosted Brad Meltzer's Decoded on History Channel and Under New York on the Discovery Channel as well. Our thanks to Christine McKinley. You can find her at christinemckinley.com. Earlier in the program, of course, we talked with Senator Maisie Hirono, who's out with a new memoir, Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. Testament, you know, the virgin birth and, and uh, whatnot. That, and uh, looking around thinking like, okay. And uh, so that is out as well. Our appreciation to Senator Hirono. We uh, thank you for listening today to Access Utah. Hi, it's Francis Lamb, and this week, forget 30-minute meals, it's all about cooking projects. We're talking smoky paellas cooked on the grill, we find out what it's like being a barbecue pitmaster, and why you might want to build an oven. It's cooking that'll change your whole weekend, and maybe your life. That's The Splendid Table from APM American Public Media. Sundays at noon on Utah Public Radio. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour... We'll spend a languid hour in a Cuban cafe listening to acoustic guajiras and boleros and passionate guarachos. Como en cada mañana, me despierto en tus brazos y desnudo en pedazos. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Café Cubano, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.